welcome podcasters to another episode of the Banking Litigation Podcast. Before we jump into this jurisprudential jamboree, um, I wanted to thank some of our podcasters for the um, feedback we've had from all around the globe, in particular Edinburgh, Melbourne and London. Please keep it coming. Uh, We look forward to receiving it uh, every month. This week, episode 15, um, Kerry and I are joined by our senior associate, star senior associate, Daniel May. Daniel, hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, Dan, I think you're about to um, jump into a cryptic question on cryptocurrencies. Uh, In particular, are they property? Uh, Dan, uh, over to you. Tell us about the case. Yes, of course. And in a nutshell, John, the answer to your question is, yes, they are. The case I've been looking at is AA and Persons Unknown. This was all about an application for an interim injunction to freeze a Bitcoin account. The facts of the case can be dealt with briefly. The application was brought by an insurance company which paid ransom money in Bitcoin when one of its customers' IT systems was hacked. This was the typical situation where, once the ransom monies were paid, the hackers provided a decryption tool. But the insurer didn't leave things there and decided to take steps to track down the hackers. It managed to identify the Bitcoin address that the ransom money had been transferred to and sought to freeze the assets before they were converted to a normal currency. As the insurers were seeking proprietary injunctions, the court had to consider whether crypto assets like Bitcoin can constitute property under English law. You would have thought that this question must have come up before, Daniel, no? Well, uh, this isn't the first case to address the issue of whether crypto assets constitute property. But it is a rare example of the issue being considered in depth. In fact, one of the previous decisions wasn't even reported. And perhaps more importantly, it's the first case since the publication of the legal statement on this exact question by the UK Jurisdictional Task Force. That's a bit of a mouthful. Well, that's UKJT for short then, John. So this is a really interesting decision to see how the UKJT statement has been received and interpreted by the courts. Getting back to the judgment, in this case, the judge recognised the classic problem that cryptocurrency like Bitcoin doesn't fit neatly into the categories of property that English law recognises. And Daniel, can you, can you remind us all why that, that is? Yeah, of course. So to put it briefly, Bitcoin is not tangible, so it can't be possessed, which is needed for a chosen possession. But it also doesn't embody any right capable of being enforced by action, which is the requirement for a chosen action. And those are the two kinds of property traditionally recognised under English law. But this didn't stop the judge in this case from granting the proprietary injunctions. Instead, he gave considerable weight to the UKJT legal statement on cryptocurrencies, saying it is a detailed, careful and compelling consideration of the issue in question, and therefore the court should adopt the same position. And the position is that, although cryptocurrency defies the traditional categories of property, It's wrong to proceed on the basis that English law only recognises the two categories I've described. And I think this is really significant. Yeah, me too. I think that's quite an interesting observation, actually. Yes, and the court also pointed to the criteria for what constitutes property in a case from 1965 called National Provisional Bank and Ainsworth, such as being definable, being identifiable by third parties, being capable of assumption by third parties, and having some degree of permanence. So looking at that case, the more recent authorities considering cryptocurrencies, and applying a bit of common sense, the court found that crypto assets can be treated as property under English law. I would say that this case seems to be an indication that the UK JT legal statement is being given considerable weight by the courts. 
Indeed, thank you, Daniel. Um, no doubt we're going to see more uh, and more of this kind of um, question arising, so it's very hel helpful to have such a categorical judgment uh, on the point. Uh, we have, of course, a blog post on the decision, and there's a link in the show notes. Moving on now to the ever-popular topic of duties of care in a financial services context, which Kerry and Daniel together are going to take us through. Yes, that's right. So we have three cases on duty of care, duties of care this month. Um, I'll take the first two and then hand over to Daniel. <clears throat> we'll try to take them at a relatively high level to bring out the key points. And the first case I have is Morley and RBS. So this is the most recent claim to reach trial, which comes out of a borrower's default under a large facility agreement during the financial crisis, and looks specifically at the actions taken by the lending bank's restructuring unit. So in this case, the claimant borrower brought various claims in tort and in contract, and the court rejected them all, giving some helpful guidance on a number of questions which are often considered in these types of borrower default claims. As it's a first instance decision, the judgment is quite long and covers a lot of ground. But rather than trying to cover everything here, which would sort of go on forever, um, I've picked out what I think are the two most important points of general application, if that works for you, John. It certainly does. Please go ahead. Okay, thank you. Great. So the first point to flag is that the court has once again rejected the notion of a so-called relational contract in a financial services context. Very topical, Kerry, but could you remind our podcasters of what that, what that means? Oh yeah, of course, no problem. So the concept of the relational contract comes from a 2013 case called Yam Seng, uh, where the court found that some contracts which require a longer-term relationship between the parties, where they make a substantial commitment to one another, so for example, some JVs or franchise agreements, etc., that sort of agreement, may incorporate an implied obligation of good faith. And we've seen this argument appear in a number of recent banking cases in a lender-borrower context. And it's been repeatedly and roundly rejected by the courts. And this is the latest case to do so. Um, and it suggests that any real initial judicial enthusiasm to extend the concept of the relation agreement has been curbed and really does emphasise the high threshold that needs to be met in order to imply a term into a contract. So good news, therefore, for the banking community. So the second point I wanted to highlight is to do with the scope of the duty of care which is owed by a bank, specifically the duty to provide banking services with reasonable skill and care. So one of the key questions in this case was about what documents or guidelines you can look at to work out the standard a bank should meet in order to determine whether the bank has satisfied this duty. And both parties in this case accepted that compliance with regulatory standards is relevant to whether or not a bank has breached this duty. But the claimant tried to argue that compliance with the bank's own internal policies and procedures should be treated in the same way. The bank obviously opposed that suggestion um, and the court in fact agreed with the bank. So internal policies or procedures are not to be treated in the same way as rules setting out professional standards across a trade or profession. That makes sense to me because some internal policies might be trying to set a gold standard and failing to meet a gold standard shouldn't mean that the bank has failed to exercise reasonable skill and care. 
Yeah, exactly. And actually, the court made that point precisely in the judgment. So this does seem like a helpful judgment for the banks and should provide reassurance for financial institutions seeking to enforce their rights against defaulting borrowers. I suspect we'll see that argument being run in many different ways in the future. But nevertheless, as you say, Kerry, for now, uh, a helpful decision for financial institutions with plenty of guidance um, uh, coming out of the judgment. Uh, Next up in the segment, um, you've got... Barnes and Ingenious Media, where the theme continues with our second case on duties of care. So a slightly different context here, though. Uh, This case arose as part of the current wave of tax deferral scheme litigation. As a bit of background, the former investors in one of these tax deferral schemes brought claims against some of the banks which lent them the money to make the investments in the tax scheme. And again, the court looked at the duties of care owed by the bank. So firstly, the court firmly rejected the argument that the investors were owed tortious duties relating to the suitability of the investment for which the loan was advanced. It reiterated that there's no general obligation on a lending bank to give advice about the prudence or otherwise of the underlying transaction in an execution-only relationship. Well, in case there was any doubt, following the Green and Rowley and very extensive uh, line of cases coming out of that. Uh, precisely, John. Case name recall sharp as ever. The court also refused to find any implied contractual terms as to suitability of the investment. It really is paramount for claimants to point to very specific words or conduct to advance this type of argument. And here the claimants tried to claim that the banks had agreed or acquiesced to the IFA um, packaging together the investment proposal with available financing and somehow that this conduct would give rise to an implied contractual term as to the suitability of the investment. But this was given little headway by the court. And finally, there was also talk of an alleged umbrella or overarching contract between the claimants and the lenders. Uh, But once again, this argument was robustly rejected. Kerry, there seems to have been an uptick in claimants using this type of umbrella contract argument to assert the existence of implied contractual terms. But it doesn't look like the courts have been particularly open to this line of argument. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Daniel. So actually, in my previous case summary, I highlighted the claimant's attempt to introduce um, a duty of good faith into the relationship. And we've actually previously seen these two types of arguments combined, which was rather novel. So where the claimant alleged that there'd been some sort of implied overarching umbrella agreement in order to try and imply then into that overarching umbrella agreement an implied duty of good faith. And somewhat unsurprisingly, that one was struck out. Standish and RBS, right? Uh, Yes, John. Uh, So I think we need to set up a point system. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So the third, the third and final uh, case in our hat-trick of duty of care cases. Over to you, Daniel. Sure. Um, Finally, I have the case of TAQA, Bretani and Rock Rose. I won't delve into the facts or background of this one, other than to say that this was a case outside of the financial services sector, but which we are looking at because it's another case considering relational contracts. Here there was a joint operating agreement in place between the parties, and the question for the court was whether the terms of the JOA were subject to any implied terms of good faith. And although the court was prepared to treat the JOA as arguably falling into the category of relational contracts, nevertheless it declined to imply an obligation of good faith. So this case is a helpful reminder that the question of whether a contract is relational is just part of the analysis. The party seeking to establish a duty of good faith 
still has the onus to show that such a duty should be implied, which, as we know, will prove difficult. Indeed. Well, thank you, uh, Daniel. Thank you, Kerry. And um, the links to the blog post for all three of these cases are, as ever, in the show notes. And now to our deep dive this month, um, the uh, subject of legal privilege again. Uh, this time, the Civil Aviation Authority and JET 2 is the subject of our discussion, a Court of Appeal decision um, from uh, earlier this year. Uh, really, the key point you need to know from the judgment is that the Court of Appeal has found that legal advice privilege, as distinct from litigation privilege, is subject to a dominant purpose test. And to be clear, this means that in order for a document to attract legal advice privilege, it has to be shown that the dominant purpose of the communication was to give or obtain legal advice. Now, the reason I mention litigation privilege is that hearing mention of a dominant purpose test in relation to privilege will be familiar because, of course, this has long been the test for litigation privilege. In that context, it's essential to show that a communication or document was prepared for the dominant purpose of contemplated litigation. In contrast, the question of whether legal advice privilege is also subject to dominant purpose tests has been far more uh, controversial, but we now have clear authority from the Court of Appeal that it is. John, so what do you think this new test could mean in practice? Um, the short answer is probably very little. Um, it might sound like big news, but it, it probably won't mean that any given document will be categorised differently when it comes to a document review. The practical impact may be less significant uh, than it seems at first. It's more of, of um, techie uh, interest. As a reminder, legal advice privilege requires a lawyer or client communication for the purpose of giving or obtaining legal advice. It's much broader than the lawyer simply telling the client uh, the law and extends to advice as to what uh, should or should not be done in, quote, the relevant legal context. And importantly, it includes, includes the back and forth communications between the lawyer and the client and not just the communication itself. The critical point from this um, JET 2 decision <clears throat> is that the Court of Appeal has protected the breadth of legal advice privilege as previously understood, and the dominant purpose, purpose test is not intended to cut across that formulation of the test uh, in any way. So against that backdrop, this is what led to my slightly flippant comment earlier on, it's difficult to see what the addition of the dominant purpose uh, test contributes. If a com communication is part of the broad spectrum of communications between the lawyer and the client, then it should not fail to meet the dominant purpose test. So, so do you think that in-house lawyers will need to update internal guidance? Yes, in fact, I had that very question last week from uh, an in-house colleague, um, and our advice was that it would be sensible to do so. No waiver of legal privilege intended. Um, although the practical effect uh, shouldn't change, it would be prudent from an in-house perspective to update any internal guidance regarding when legal advice privilege will apply. Another interesting point in the case that's likely to come up in practice is how the dominant purpose test would apply to communications sent to multiple addresses, uh, for example, where the addresses include both lawyers and non-lawyers. Yeah, which will be common in an in-house setting. Uh, very common indeed, Kerry, that's right. <clears throat> Rather unhelpfully, perhaps, the court's discussion on this point is quite tricky to follow. The key point seems to be that the court will consider each communication between the sender and each recipient separately. Uh, and the reason for that is that legal advice privilege attaches to communications rather than the sender or the recipient. 
And here the court didn't think that the form of the request, in other words, whether it's a single multi-addressee email or separate emails to various people, should be relevant as to whether it's covered by legal advice privilege. If you like, they're more interested in substance than form. So the upshot is that combining privileged communication to a lawyer with a non-privileged communication to a non-lawyer will obviously not give the protection of privilege to otherwise non-privileged communications. Um, that seems logical, but perhaps not always easy to deal with uh, in practice. And I suspect that the age-old habit of copying in uh, a lawyer to perhaps an otherwise non-privileged communication will continue. The key message for in-house lawyers uh, should be to advise the, the underlying business to exercise caution when sending sensitive information, which assume, is assumed to be privileged, to the in-house legal function while copying in a large group of recipients. Uh, as the email may not be uh, privileged in relation to all of them. And then you get into questions of whether or not there's been a collateral waiver or just a waiver as regards uh, one recipient. That's very interesting. Thanks, John. I've seen, I've seen a few other common law jurisdictions introduce the dominant purpose test for legal advice privilege, but that's always been where they've also introduced a broader concept of who will constitute the client. So in, in this decision, did the court also consider the question of who is the client? Um, <clears throat> back to Three Rivers again. Now, good point. Although the Court of Appeal did not uh, seem to acknowledge the, this trade-off uh, in the common law in other jurisdictions, uh, it, it, it did find it was um, bound to follow the tricky judgment in Three Rivers and take a narrow approach of who is the client for the purposes of legal advice privilege. Um, the Court did, quite interestingly, make it clear that it would have preferred not to follow that approach and join the chorus of criticism that we saw in the SFO and ENRC case. But we'll have to wait uh, for a Supreme Court decision um, uh, on this point for any change in the law. I presume we have a blog post on this decision? Yep, we certainly do. Um, well, look, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I sense, uh, in particular in view of the last decision, an interesting judicial year uh, ahead. Uh, for now, we'll continue providing you with our uh, monthly updates, and please do keep uh, the comments uh, coming in. Uh, and until we next speak uh, again, it's goodbye from Kerry. Goodbye. And thank you from both of us to Daniel uh, for your contribution. Thank you, John, and goodbye to everyone. And goodbye from me as well. Thank you, podcasters.